Last week, a friend of mine asked me to give a shiur about the shofar. Nothing terribly long, but at the same time, I've been thinking about this other aspect of Judaism that I've never really focused on. For a long time, I've been doing analysis of the Torah, talking about the reasons and the explanations for why things are there are the way they are. Um, and it's been, you know, I take an unusual perspective perhaps, but it's been a, high, a highly intellectual exercise. What I haven't talked a lot about is the feelings and the experiences that should be driving our relationship with Hashem. Yes, there are ideas, there are things we can see, there are things that can motivate us, but taking that next step and talking about the feeling, talking about the impact it's supposed to have on us personally, and not in vague terms, like be aware of the presence of God or something like that, but in very specific, tangible terms, is something I really haven't spent a lot of time doing. In reality, I'm not a very good person at prayer. If you look around the room, I'll be the first person to finish the Amidah in most cases. But there are situations in which that changes, in which I use the ideas in order to build a context and a feeling and an emotional and almost physical reaction to the prayers that are going on around me. I'll get to it at a later point, but the opening of the Amidah, if I think about it in the way that I I think it's appropriate. If I feel those things, I invariably develop an extremely strong headache, and it's very unpleasant. So I don't do it very much. So I want to talk about Rosh Hashanah, but I want to start off with the ideas and then step into the feelings, step into the experiences that we should be having, because almost invariably, on the Amin Narayim, I have those experiences. I'm not going to share all of what I experience, but there's certain things I can that I think will make sense and will help other people daven. I'm not printing this out. And the reason is because I don't want it to be something in shul that disrupts that experience, that disrupts what should be, uh, um, what should be experienced by the people doing the davening. So instead, this is a preparatory thing, like I was asked, something to do beforehand, something to have in mind that you might be able to benefit from in the course of the davening. So the first perspective I want to look at with this is actually Hashem's perspective, because many of us are in a way familiar with Hashem's perspective. Hashem is like a parent. And if you're a parent and you want your kids to do a certain thing, develop a relationship with you, do mitzvot, whatever it happens to be, and your kids want something from you, what gets you to give them what they want? Now, if you're a good parent, the last item on the list that'll be effective at getting your kids what they want is the kids whining at you. Yet so much of our davening is based on whining. I think that that's actually a misconception of what our davening is meant to be. Instead, particularly in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Yom Naraim, Hashem is looking for something other than whining, just like a parent would. First and foremost, your kid says, you know what, I should get that new because I deserve it. Okay, they deserve it. It's a perfectly good reason to give it to them. Second reason they might come up to you and say, I should get it because you promised. Okay, that's a perfectly good reason too. And the third reason is, is because I'm trying to get better. And what you give me will help me accomplish that. 
the brachot or the Xbox or whatever else, and I don't know how they make that argument, but let's pretend it's an Xbox. The Xbox that you give me will enable me to be a better student, a better person, more in touch with my friends. I don't know what it is. So you have three arguments that you can make that are not, I want an Xbox. One is I deserve it. The second is that you promised it. And the third is that I will use it well. So the Rosh Hashanah davening and the Torah reading focus on these three ideas. The first way we see it focus is the word Hamelech, the king. Now, for some reason, our literature seems to focus on the king as being powerful. But there are lots of powerful people who weren't kings. Uh, I think even in Judaism, you could describe some of the judges as being strong men, but they weren't kings. You can look at modern times and say Muammar Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, very powerful. Or even Kim Jong-un, very powerful, but not a king. Queen Elizabeth had no power, but she was a queen. Kingship is about what you respect and you honor. And so that, that third path of, I respect and honor God. My priorities are in line with God's. Just like a child saying to a parent, I respect and honor you and my priorities are in line with you. So if I get what I need, life, wealth, brachot, health, whatever it happens to be, I will use what I get in order to forward what you also care about. Because I want to honor what you want to honor. We're on the same page. So that first path, that first consistent theme throughout Rosh Hashanah is almost like that final tshuva path of I'll use what you give me well. But there's also elements of pakad, of I deserve it because my needs, my desires, what I want to bring up in the world are in line with what you want to be in the world. So this melech theme runs throughout. We have melech in shacharit, and then we come to the Torah reading. In the Torah reading, we see these three parts again. We see Pakad, because Sarah is Pakad to have a child. She deserves to have a child. The second one is um, Yaakov. He is brought to be sacrificed. Actually, the second one right after that is, I apologize, is Ishmael. And he's exiled from the house, but Hashem promised Avraham that Ishmael would not be destroyed. And so when push comes to shove, Ishmael has to be recognized. That's Zohar. You promised. And the third one is Tshuva. Where do we see Tshuva? It's that little bit at the end that seems so odd. Avi Melech comes to Avraham and says, I see the presence of God in you. I want good stuff. Be nice to me. And they bring offerings together to recognize this. Interestingly, at the end of this, Avraham plants a tree, which, of course, we're committed to destroy later. We destroy all trees of prayer. But he plants a tree as a memorial of perhaps the first time somebody truly significant came to him and said, you're a man of God. I'm not sure about that. I have to think about it. So we look at these three things and we see them in the offerings for Rosh Hashanah. Actually, all the Chagim have these offerings connected and woven into them. Pakad, what does Avraham serve? The angels? Ben Bakar. So he offered Ben Bakar. What is the sign of the fear of God? We see it in the Akedah. The horn of the ram, Yael. So we offer Yael. 
And the last one is Sheva Kvasim, the seven lambs, because that's what Avimelech brings. But why are we reading these Torah portions? Yes, there's a thematic connection to the ideas of Rosh Hashanah. But there's got to be more. And I, this is where I want to get into the feelings of it. And I think really, we should be putting ourselves into the shoes of the people in these readings. Right? Look at yourself as if you're Sarah. I think there's a bit of all these themes in all of us. Look at yourself as if you're Sarah. So you know what? If I deserve brachot, Hashem will come and give them to me. Now, Sarah laughs at the idea. It seems impossible. It seems impossible for a 90-year-old woman to have a baby. But you have to recognize what Sarah recognizes. She doesn't, she wants, doesn't want to admit her laughter because she's afraid. She has fear of God. She recognizes that, in fact, Hashem has this power, and she's ashamed almost that she laughed. But no matter how set in stone we think things are, they can be changed. They can be uplifted. I remember listening to a story by, by a woman who, uh, who wrote murder mysteries. She'd been a sea captain and this and that and the other. And she'd gone home. I think she was in the uh, Martha's Vineyard, one of the locals. Her mother had died. And after her mother died, she was in her 60s. And uh, she asked her friends, what should I do now? My mother's died. I'm kind of at loss. What to do? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, the, the other things that she did. Um, but, uh, but she ended up um, writing murder mysteries. And she got her first book published in her 70s. And it was a bestseller. And she says this, I was 73 or 77, whatever her age happened to be. And you hear the entire audience laugh. And she said to the group, I remember this very clearly. She said to the audience, she said, yes, there's hope for you too. There's this idea in Bakad that there's hope for you too. That the road isn't set. That there's different things that can happen and you don't need to consign yourself to whatever challenges and suffering you have now. So put yourself in the shoes of Sarah. Imagine yourself receiving the brachot of Hashem and recognize that Hashem can give you any bracha, any bracha whatsoever. It's not impossible. And you might laugh at the impossibility of it, but it's there. The second person we put our, our, our personality into, I don't think it's Hagar, unfortunately, in this situation. She, uh, she, she doesn't come off very well, neither does Avraham, really. Um, but the second person is Yishmael. He doesn't even know Hashem made a promise, necessarily. He doesn't say anything about Hashem telling Yishmael that he has a promise with Avraham. He's stuck out there by himself. His mother, his own mother, has abandoned him to die because she can't bear to watch it. They're out of water. Hopeless. Hashem recognizes, recognizes that there is a promise made and comes and rescues him. We end up with the, the same idea at the Akedah. We can hardly imagine being Yitzchak about to be sacrificed to God, and God doesn't do it, because God can't, because there's a contract. These people don't even appeal to the contract. They don't even say, wait a minute, God, you promised that I wasn't going to be harmed. You promised that I would be rescued. Sarah, in a way, has the same thing. Hashem doesn't say, you promised me children. She doesn't know that she's going to have them, even though she's deserving. It comes out of the blue. It's unexpected. 
But these are not the brachot of blessing, of positive brachot. These are the brachot of avoiding catastrophe, of avoiding what's horrible. Elimination. Extermination. All of us in Israel, we go on about our, about our days, but we have an existential threat in Iran. They want to destroy us completely. If they get lucky, they could. I think we have other sorts of personal existential threats. And we don't know that we have personal contracts with God, but, but maybe we do. Maybe Hashem has in some way promised us that when we face the brink of elimination, we'll be rescued. Not just all of Klal Yisrael, but parts of it. I have no idea. It's the whole thing. You can't know. But despite not knowing, perhaps, perhaps, and I think this is very hard in the echo of the Shoah, you can somehow trust that maybe, maybe that's the case. That maybe when you're facing elimination, Hashem will rescue you. So you can see yourself feel like Ishmael drying out to death, right? Without any water in the desert. You can see yourself like that. You can see yourself being threatened with Iranian nukes and, and a world all around you that turns against you, that thinks you're evil, that thinks you need to be destroyed, wiped off the river to the sea. And look at all that. And just maybe your 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 rescue will come. Hashem will come and rescue you. You're not actually asking for it, but you're expressing and feeling the danger, the panic, the fear. You let the fear in. When you hear about Yishmael, put yourself in his shoes. Let the fear in. When you read about Yitzchak, put yourself in his shoes. Let the fear in. That's the experience of Zohar, to be rescued after having that existential fear. The third one is Avimelech. And Avimelech comes along. He recognizes the presence of God in Hashem. He wants his children taken care of. He wants his future taken care of. He recognizes there's something bigger than him. He's a king. There's something bigger than him. There's generations to come. And he wants to have a good relationship with Avraham. He's not such a great guy. Right? Neither of them seem to be such a great guy. Avraham has lied about his wife being his wife multiple times. And basically, you know, bad things have happened. Avraham is a great guy. I take that back. But he's, his relationship with his wife is definitely questionable. But Avimelech comes along and recognizes that Avraham is a man of God. It's a very particular thing. And thus he's a source of blessing. To be able to turn and look and see others and recognize the godly within them and recognize that having a good relationship with them in Ravimela's case, can materially help you. It's like rewarding a child for reading by giving them another version of Katan that they want. Right? They're not acting out of Melech, out of an honor to serve, out of Sarah's Pakad. They're acting out of self-interest. But that's a start down the road towards what can eventually be tremendous. So again, put yourself in the shoes of the people. Try to imagine yourself like them, and then we come to Musaf. Now, the first thing in Musaf that we do is the shofar. And I have long thought about the shofars, a variety of things, but in the last few years, I've settled on something my brother said that I've modified. What he said was, is that Hashem 
breathes our neshama into us through our nostrils. It's the breath. And when we speak, we have Hashem's voice and our voice. We mix the physical and the divine in our words. And he spoke about the structure of the throat and it being a pure exhalation, whatever it happens to be. For me, the shofar represents the fear of God. And so we're filtering our voice, our breath, through the fear of God. And we filter out ourselves, and what's left over is the fear of God. As it says in the Tehillim right before the shofar, Hashem bekol shofar, God is in the voice of the shofar. So when we see the shofar being blown at the arrival of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's the voice of God, the closest we'll ever get, the voice of God that we're hearing. What is the voice of God saying to us? Now, traditionally, we blow three blasts, right? Tekiah, Shvarim, and Teruah. What do these words mean? Where do they show up? What do they imply? I'm not sure of all the halachic history, but I believe we chose these words. I mean, it's a Yom Teruah, it's a, it's a day of blowing. But we chose these words and these notes in order to express something. And in this case, I think in order to have God express something. So if we look first at the word tekiah, the word is used, the shorish is used, the root, in a few different interesting places. One is, is Yaakov pitches his tent in the mountain while he's running from Levan. Now this word is not used elsewhere uh, for that purpose. Um, it seems like a bit of an odd uh, uh, version of the word pitch. I guess when you're in a mountain and it's windy and all that kind of stuff, you really have to pitch your tent well. Well, pitch it well. Second one we have is the angel wrestling with Yaakov the next day. Well, actually, the second one we have is, is, is Levan comes, and it says he pitches his brothers in the mountain. Okay, he's, he's, he's firmly establishing his place opposite Yaakov. The third one we have is, is very shortly afterwards. Abraham is, yeah, Yaakov is coming back into the land, and he has the wrestling match with the angel, and the angel taka, takas his thigh. Right? So we have this, this, this hard whack, this firm strike. And then the next one we have is when the locusts are picked up, Hashem lifts up the locusts and he throws them into the sea. It's this forceful connection, this forceful strike. So this takia, I think, should almost be felt as if Hashem's presence is, is pushing against you. You listen to that note and you feel God pushing against you, not in any particular direction, just firmly all around you. There's a force to be reckoned with, a force to be recognized. And if you can, to be literally felt through that note. The second one, Shvarim. Shvarim is used very interestingly for grain, but it's also used for a forced purchase. Yaakov's sons go down to Egypt, they have to buy the grain, no matter what price is being asked. That's a shiver. The Egyptian people, there's no more grain left in the land, they have to buy Yosef's grain, shiver. Shvarim, and of course the grain itself, it has a, a husk and it has all this other stuff. And how do we turn it into grain, Shvarim? We beat it and we break off the external parts. They blow away. So this idea of being forced to do something that you don't really necessarily want, 
but it's also something that you need. In the case of the grain, it's something that defies you, defines you. It yields a valuable core that you wouldn't have given up otherwise. So the Safarium. Whack. 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 Savarium is the voice of God striking you so that you understand that you need something and you're willing to yield and give up something else to get it. You're willing to yield that external core in order to have the pure inner peace, the most valuable part of you revealed. What's really important is prioritized with Shvarim. So imagine yourself there being struck by these notes. I might try it in shul. I'm not sure if I can. Also, we'll see whether I can pull it off. But I used to dive into an Indian shul and they would blow the shofar and move it across the room and everybody would be hit by the blast. It was a remarkable experience. I don't know if I actually have the skill to pull it off, but that's the idea. It just blows past you and you feel it hit you a sound wave. And the third one is terwa, which is this alarm. Actually, the root of the word is ra, is evil. Right? Hashem is the God of good and evil. And many times, in order to get us to move, starting in Gan Eden, Hashem exposes us to evil so that we will move towards the good. This negative power this feeling of danger, of loss, moves us forward. And we see it in the text. It says that when we, we blow the Shavarim, this group of people moves. When we blow the Shavarim, this group of people moves. What was wrong with where, where they were before? What was wrong with where they were camping beforehand? Why do we need to have trumpets moving them on to the next place? Well, eventually they go to the land, but not right away. So what's going on? Well, we become complacent. We, we find out where we are and we go, okay, we're in a good place. We're going to stop moving. The Tarua is there to say, no. Move. Even if you're in a good place. There's nothing wrong with where the B'nai Israel were in the desert. They had to go someplace else in the desert. Something about the very act of moving and changing and adjusting and growing and shifting what's beneath our feet enables us to be greater. And we end the cycle back with the Shrua. Back with this, not the Shrua, sorry, the Tekiah. Back with this idea of Hashem's presence all around us, Hashem's touch upon us. We can feel God, the voice of God pushing against us. Only this time, perhaps, it's less of a strike and more of an embrace. And we repeat it. The weight of God's presence, the threshing, the striking, the force purchase, the understanding what you need to take, the alarm you need to move, and then the embrace of God again, and again, and again, and again. Forty times, I believe, we do this. I should know. I'm blowing. But anyway, 30 or 40 times. We go through this cycle, sometimes just with Shvarim, sometimes just with the alarm. But the general process is one of the weight of God's presence, 
the thrashing, the threshing, the forced acceptance, the alarm that we need to move in the embrace of God. No matter where we are, no matter how much we've done, we need to keep that pushing. We need to keep that moving. We can't be satisfied and stop. When we stop in a way, we stop living. Hashem is enabling us to live, and the voice of God, the Shofar, is pushing us to do exactly that. So then we go through the Amidah. We have Malachim, which of course, uh, Malchiot, sorry, which of course we talked about before. And this is the idea of experiencing the joy of serving Hashem. It's, 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 it can be hard to imagine, but again, go back to that Queen Elizabeth example. You identify the values of Hashem. Hashem, the creator who rests. Hashem who wants to drive us to do more and make more and then use that to connect to the timeless and to what's greater than ourselves, to relate to what would seem to be completely unrelatable. Imagine those ideas within you the work and the creation and the whole and the world around you being adjusted, how much it's changed in the last hundred years? How much Eretz Israel has changed in the last 20 years? How much all these little efforts people do, a little bit of shibbutz in your apartment, whatever it happens to be, a paint job, a cleaned car, all these little changes we make to the world that add up and then enable us to celebrate the Shabbat in an environment that reflects the whole that builds on it because we've acted like a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Go through that process in your head, Menachim. Recognize that the best in yourself, when you contribute to the world and use it for something greater, is also what Hashem wants. And having that idea and that connection and that kesher, that's a recognition of God. Queen Elizabeth wasn't exactly explicit about politics, but she wanted dignity for the nation. You can embrace that if you're English. Her family had issues. She wasn't God, right? But there's this theme and there's this idea of dignity in the royalty for the nation. And in Kaddish Baruch Hu's case, it's this wondrousness of being able to change the world and rest and have a Shabbat after that connects it, I think. Zichronot, again, that feeling of threat we talked about before. And Shofarot, which, again... It's almost like tshuva. Tshuva implies a returning only. And the shofar with its note seems to suggest that you don't just return, you get pushed. Are you getting pushed forward? There's no place where you go, ah, I'm back in the fold. I'm back on the right derech. No, you gotta keep moving. It's not enough to stop. So you can feel the shofar surrounding you, the presence of Hashem around you. The presence of Hashem is saying, don't stop. Keep going, keep pushing. Recognize the baggage you don't need. Break down to your core, like that grain, and keep moving. So that's the kind of thoughts I'll have on, on, on Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is a little different, um, but Rosh Hashanah, those are the kinds of feelings I tend to have. Um, so far as you know, I'm, I'm going to be blowing not some big kudo with a beautiful note, but the thin, small voice of God, right? Maybe we'll be, be blowing a ram's horn. I think that's particularly 
uh, appropriate for this uh, for this this holiday. Um, and I hope to share with those of you who are local. I hope to share the experience with you. I'm going to try and have a shofar blowing that reflects this, um, that reflects these ideas as best as I can. Of course, the mitzvah of the shofar is to listen to the shofar. I'll be blowing. I don't get to experience this as much when I'm blowing because I'll lose track of time and things like that and all sorts of, it won't sound very good. But for those who are not blowing but are listening, these are the ideas I think that we should be trying trying to embrace. So thank you for listening, and I hope that this somehow helps you have a rewarding Rosh Hashanah and one in which you push yourself forward or not push yourself forward, in which the voice of God helps you push forward and helps you develop. Thank you for listening. <laughs>